Hi, this is John and Valerie Domingo, and, and you're, you're listening, listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, everyone, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas, and it's Sunday, May 21st, and this is your Sunday sermon. We're continuing in our sermon series called Getting There. If you missed the start of last week's series, you can catch up right here on this media platform. I hope you will. The whole idea behind this series, Getting There, is to look at the ways we can make forward progress in our spiritual walk, to become a more mature Christian, in other words. Last week, we began by talking about the power of mom, and we looked at that through the lens of Psalm 22. We found that the psalmist was getting there. He was growing spiritually because his mother set the foundation for his spiritual walk from birth. Today is part two, and the sermon title is called The Power of Design. And we're going to look at one of my most favorite psalms of all, Psalm 139. And we're going to see just how the psalmist David grows to see and appreciate just how powerful God's design is for his life and ours. There's a lot to talk about today. So before we get there, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you for the privilege we have to gather together and hear from your word today. Lord, teach us about the power of design as it says so in Psalm 139. God, we're excited about this and I'm excited for all that have come. God bless this time as we bless you with just honoring you for who you are and thanking you for all you have done and continue to do in our lives. To you be all honor and glory in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. In Robert Wise's book, Your Churning Place, he tells a story about Burt Lancaster, a famous movie star who made almost a hundred movies between 1939 and 1989. Before he began working in the movies, Burt Lancaster was a circus performer, a job he was fortunate to land considering his less than flawless audition. He was asked to perform on the parallel bars, so he leaped on the bars and began his routine. Because he was nervous, his timing was off, and he spun off the bar falling flat on his face some ten feet below. He was so humiliated that he immediately leaped back on the bar. As he spun again at the same point, he flipped off and smashed to the ground once more. His tights were torn, he was cut and bleeding, and he was fiercely upset. He leaped back on the bars again, but the third time was even worse because this time he fell on his back. The agent came over, picked him up, and said, Son, if you promise not to do that again, you've got the job. Burt Lancaster was frustrated. He knew he could do the job, but every time he tried, he failed. A lesser man would have given up, but Lancaster was so convinced of his own abilities that he kept at it even when he fell down repeatedly. You know, many of the great men and women of the past have approached life in this very way. Henry Ford was broke by the age of 40, and yet he created the first automobile empire. Albert Einstein, he flunked in math, and yet he devised some of the most powerful math equations we have today. One of Great Britain's greatest admirals, Horatio Nelson, suffered from seasickness. Helen Keller could not hear or see, but graduated with honors from Radcliffe College. And Abraham Lincoln was well known throughout his life for his failures in business and life, and yet he is remembered as one of the greatest presidents of our nation. These people overcame difficulties because they were convinced they had a purpose and they had value, a purpose and value that their handicaps could not damage or undermine. Abraham Lincoln explained the reason he was driven to accomplish so much in his life. He said, and I quote, Surely God would not have created such a being as man, 
with an ability to grasp the infinite, to exist only for a day. No, no, man was made for immortality." End quote. In Psalm 139, David arrived at the same conclusion. He came to believe that he had been created by God, that he had been fearfully and wondrously made. He realized that God had knit him together. I can visualize David sitting on a hillside watching his father's sheep and having nothing to do but think. And sometimes he sees and hears and feels, and it turns his thoughts to God. Maybe he looked at his hands. Dr. Scott Carrison noted hands are one of the most intricate and beautiful parts of the human body. Nineteen bones arranged to form a cup, an arch, a flat surface, or a bald fist, each shape occurring on demand. Fingers able delicately to lift a needle from a table, or twist open a stubborn cap from a fruit jar, or distinguish between a penny and a dime merely by touch. No engineer designing robot hands has ever come close to such perfection. Or perhaps David was listening to a bird in a tree and wondered at the marvel of hearing. Whitaker Chambers wrote a book where he told of sitting with his little two-year-old daughter on his lap, and he just stared intently at her ear. He was struck by the design of that ear. How beautiful, how shell-like it was, and how perfectly designed to catch every sound wave in the air to be translated into sound by the brain. Knowing something about mechanics of the ear, he began to think about that. He was struck by how impossible it is that anything so intricate, so complex, so beautifully designed could ever occur by chance. That led him to other lines of thought, and eventually he investigated the Christian position and became a Christian. Or maybe David just thought about his breathing. Just think about that with me, folks. Take a breath in for a moment and just hold it, and then let it out. What if you had to control that very action every moment of your life? What if you had to remember to breathe in and out? How long do you think it could do that? Not long, obviously. And yet God has designed our lungs to automatically do that action over and over again. Whatever got David to thinking, it led him to realize how much he meant to God. Look at verse 14, Psalm 139, verse 14. It says, David praised God because he realized he was fearfully and wonderfully made. But look at the previous verse. He says in the previous verse 13, for you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And when David thought about this, he realized how much God cared for him. And that led him to realize that God cared so much that he would always be there. Let's look at verses 7 through 10. They read this way. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. David was basically visualizing the greatest distances he could imagine, up to the heavens, down in the depths, over the seas and into an unknown land. It wouldn't matter because God would always be there. Ray Stedman, a Christian evangelist and pastor, once told this story about himself. He said, I was about 12 years old when we moved from Minnesota to Montana. The night before we left, I got down on my bed and said, Goodbye, God, we're going to Montana. I was sure I would not find him there, but when we arrived, there he was, and I found him everywhere since. As David continued to think about how marvelously God had created him, it led him to realize that God would be there for him wherever he was and that God's love for him gave him value and purpose. But we need to realize that there are people who don't think God exists. 
There are people out there who believe man is little more than an advanced animal, a complex but accidental collection of chemical interactions that has no purpose and which has no inherent value beyond reproduction. Back in 2005, Time magazine quoted evolutionary author Robert Wright, who was answering the question of what makes people happy. Wright said, People so reliably pursue food and sex because eating and sex release neurochemicals that make them feel happy. And the reason this neurochemical rule is part of the human heritage is that the genes responsible for it have understandably done well for themselves. In other words, Wright was saying, we're able to be happy because our happy genes survived evolution. If those genes hadn't made it through that long evolutionary process, all we'd be able to do is mope around. But it goes even further than that. Another Time magazine article told of a science known as evolutionary biology. The premise of this science is that we are human animals and can look at the realm of other animals for reasonable models for the underlying rationale for how we believe. According to the article, it is to man's evolutionary advantage to sow his seeds far and wide. They just naturally sleep around, in other words. Women instead seek mates with the best genes and the most to invest in offspring. These strategies can put the sexes in conflict and undermine love. As an example, these scientists point to the ape culture. Among apes, the greater the difference in size between male and female, the less monogamous the male. The article concludes by saying that this then forms the basis for understanding infidelity and promiscuity in the human race, thus understandable to a race of animals that have evolved into its present higher form. That's just crazy, isn't it, beloved? But that's what's out there today. So without God in the picture, men and women are reduced to being selfish animals that are principally driven by their desire to reproduce. As Alan Webster put it, evolution sees man as one step above apes. Scripture sees him as one step beneath angels. That's what David is saying in this psalm. He realizes what a marvelous creation he is. And that points to one of the major characteristics of Christianity, which is this. We believe we were created by God. And because we've been created by God, we realize we've been created for something more than selfishness and pleasure seeking. You and I were made to do great things for the Lord. Or as Ephesians 2.10 tells us, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Burt Lancaster fell again and again and got back up again and again because he knew he was capable. Inside his heart and mind, there was this confidence of his own value and ability. But that isn't really enough for us to make our own way through life. In 2006, Oprah Winfrey endorsed a book called The Secret, which attempts to share the secret of life. And according to the author, the secret is, anyone can have anything they want as long as they can visualize it. Now, I have nothing against the power of positive thinking. It's okay insofar as it goes. In fact, for many years, I was involved in a business where I spent many, many hours daily reading positive mental attitude books and listening to people who spoke on the subject. But after nearly three years of doing that, I finally realized that the idea of I can because I think I can or I can have something because I believe I can get it was little more than wishful thinking. And folks, it doesn't work that way in real life. David was a man who had positive thinking. He was a man of confidence and courage, but his confidence and courage were not based on his personal abilities or potential. They were based on God's grace and power. David was a man who was willing to face giants and to lead his men against the enemies of Israel, but his confidence was based entirely on the realization that he was created in the image of God and that he was special to God. 
Look with me again at verses 1 to 5. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. David knew God had laid his hand upon him, and this was the basis of his feeling of value and purpose. Now this is where I ran into a wall. I got this far in preparing the sermon, and I realized I ran out of things to say, and I just knew that there was more in this passage, but I didn't know how to get it. So I did what I often do when that happens. I read the passage again and again and again, and then I walk away and I come back and I read it again. And I saw something that I'd never seen before. What I saw in Psalm 139 was that it was no ordinary song. This was literally a lover's poem, an expression of his adoration of God. David focuses the bulk of his song on proclaiming how much God has done for him. Look with me at verses 7 through 18. Let's start with 7. Where can I go from your spirit, he says? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise up on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my innermost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All my days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast the sum of them! Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And then David goes to great lengths to express that he loves what God loves and hates what he hates. Look at verses 19 to 22. If only you would slay the wicked, O God, away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. And then in verses 23 and 24, David asks God to examine his heart and make sure it's clean and acceptable. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Nothing in David's life mattered more to him than God. And this is where we want to get in our relationship with God as well. We want to get to the point where All we want to do is talk about God. We want to get to the point where we're so taken by God that people just know how much we love him. We want to get to the point where in everything we do, we ask whether it pleases him. We want to get to the point where every time we take communion, we ask ourselves if there's sin in our lives. And if so, we need to deal with that. We do this because we know God loves us and we love him back. That's what lovers do. They're vulnerable with each other because they can trust in each other's love. It's when we truly realize how much God cares for us that our lives take on new meaning and purpose. Ben Hooper was twice elected governor of Tennessee, and he tells this story about his childhood. My mother wasn't married when I was born. When I started to school, my classmates had a name for me, and it wasn't a very nice name. 
I used to go off by myself both at recess and during lunchtime because of the taunts of my playmates, which cut me deeply. What was worse was going downtown on Saturday afternoon and feeling every eye burning a hole through you. They were all wondering who my real father was. When I was about 12, a new preacher came to our church. I would always go in late and slip out early. But one day the preacher said the benediction so fast I got caught up and had to walk out with the crowd. I could feel every eye in church on me. Just about the time I got to the door, I looked up and the preacher was looking right at me. Who are you, son? Whose boy are you? I felt the old weight come upon me. It was like a big black cloud. Even the preacher was putting me down, I thought. But as the preacher looked down at me, studying my face, he began a big smile of recognition. Wait a minute, he said. I know who you are. I see the family resemblance. You are a son of God. With that, he slapped me across the back and said, Boy, you've got a great inheritance. Go and claim it. That, Ben Hooper said, was the most important single sentence anyone ever said to me. With Christ's help, Ben Hooper had overcome his sense of rejection and inadequacy, and he claimed his inheritance as a child of God. David knew what it was like to feel rejection and inadequacy as well. He wrote Psalm 39 as he was recovering from the greatest moral and spiritual disaster of his life. But that's not the end of the story. David continued to grow in the knowledge and love of God. He was a man after God's own heart because he demonstrated his faith and was committed to following the Lord. Yes, his faith was tested on a grand scale and he failed at times. But after his sin, he sought and received the Lord's forgiveness. In the final analysis, David loved God's law and he sought to follow it exactly. As a man after God's own heart, David is a role model for all of us. And that, beloved, is what getting there is all about. The power of God's design is that he's made you in his image. And what he made is good. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.